Epistle to the Romans. It's the first of the epistles in our New Testament. Maybe not the first written, but definitely the first in order as we find them in our present Bibles. Romans chapter 9. Okay, what I want to do this morning, I want to give you all a list. If you're keeping notes, this will be real easy in the beginning. I'm going to give you 12 steps. 12 steps of thought that sort of survey what Romans 9 has been about thus far. You know, a survey is just kind of a broad outline or an overview. 12 major steps of progression that we have seen up to this point in Romans chapter 9. So, you guys have your Bibles open to Romans 9. We're going to run through the first 23 verses real fast. Step 1 is a fact. Now in the different steps, I'm going to have facts, I'm going to have questions, and then I'm going to have answers to questions. That's basically how this chapter progresses. Step 1 is a fact. A fact that affects Paul personally. The heart of the problem Paul addresses here in Romans 9 is found in verses 2 and 3. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of brother, my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, Israelites. You know what Paul's doing? By expressing his own sorrow and anguish, he's actually setting up for us a theological problem that would probably occur more in the mind of Jews than it would of Gentiles. But by expressing his own sorrow and anguish for his kinsmen, he's actually developing a theological problem. What is that problem? Well, his kinsmen are cut off and accursed from Christ. You say, wait, he's wishing himself, if it were possible, that he might be cut off and accursed from Christ. Yeah, but you don't wish that for the sake of somebody unless the people you wish that for are themselves accursed and cut off from Christ. That's where his sorrow and his anguish are coming from. That's the first step. Second step, you find in verses 4 and 5. The second fact is that these very kinsmen of Paul's, these Israelites according to the flesh, they are God's covenant people. They've, to them were given the adoption, to them were given promises, to them were given covenants. That's step two. Step three comes at us in verse six. It's a question, and it's the question that arises from the first two facts. One, the Jews are perishing. Two, they're perishing after they were given so many promises. So the question comes in, Romans 9, 6, it is not as though the Word of God has failed. Because the question that arises is this one. It can really make it seem like God's Word has failed. The real issue here is whether or not God can be trusted. Is He faithful to His Word? Or is He not faithful to His Word? Look, we Christians are told at the end of Romans chapter 8 that we can never be separated from the love of Christ. But here's the thing. If God promised His love to the Jews and yet now He's turned His back on them, what hope do we have? So that's step three, the question. Has God failed to uphold His Word? Which brings us to step four. God's Word has not failed. Not one of His... Covenants, not one of His promises, has ever failed. And the way we explain that is how? It's right there in Romans 9, 6 at the end. The way to explain how it is that most Jews are perishing, yet God's Word has never failed, is found right there. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Just because you're in the Jewish bloodline doesn't automatically make you a true 
Jew. There are two kinds of Israel. There is physical, ethnic Israel, those who are born in the bloodline of Abraham. And there is spiritual Israel. You become a spiritual son of Abraham, Galatians tells us, by faith in Christ. Not by being born over in the land of Canaan. So there's a thing. Not everyone physically descended from Abraham truly is a spiritual child of Abraham. You see that right there in the beginning of verse 7. Not everyone physically descended from Abraham is a true spiritual child. Yes, the Lord gave promises of eternal life and salvation from sin to Israel, but not to those who are merely Jews outwardly, but to those who are Jews inwardly. That brings us to step five. Here's another question. Well, if God's promises of forgiveness of sin, eternal life, everlasting joy, if all these things are promised only to true Israel, the true children of Abraham, if they're the only ones who experience being saved from their sins, then here's the next logical question. How does someone get into that very privileged group of people? How do you become true Israel? If it's not by being born in a specific bloodline, you can't become a true Jew simply by being born a physical Jew, then how do you become one? That brings us to step six. The answer to that question, how does someone become a real Israelite? Romans 9.11 spells it out in perfect detail. Here you have Jacob and Esau. Though they were not yet born, though they had done nothing either good or bad, in order, and you remember what happened, God determined to love Jacob and hate Esau before they had done good or bad, before they were born. Why? In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works. It doesn't have anything to do with what Jacob and Esau would do, would not do, might do, were able to do, were not able to do. It had nothing. God was not looking down through time. It happened specifically before they had done any good or bad, meaning that it doesn't have anything to do with any good or bad. It has to do with God's purposes according to election. Now that brings us to step seven. Is this fair? You can see that question there in verse 14. In verse 13, it says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And that brings up the question, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is it unjust for God to love Jacob and hate Esau? And decide this before either of them have been born or have done any good or bad. Is it fair that Ishmael was passed over and Isaac was shown mercy as a child of promise? Is it fair that Moses received compassion while Pharaoh was hardened? Is it fair that most of the Jews are not being saved. Clearly the Lord does not extend the same mercy to all people. Is that fair? Is that right? Or does this spell out some injustice on God's part? That brings us to step 8 and the answer to that question. By no means. You see that at the end of verse 14. This isn't unjust for God to have mercy upon one and not upon another. Why? Well, verse 15 says, because he has mercy on whom he'll have mercy. And folks, it is, after all, mercy. Verse 18 restates that. He has mercy on whomever he wills. That means that no one who gets mercy deserves mercy. If you can show me someone who deserves mercy and doesn't get it, then we can talk about God being unfair. But as long as it's mercy, how can anybody talk about injustice on God's part? It's mercy. Men don't deserve mercy. The only time we want to accuse anybody of injustice is when they do something to someone that isn't deserved. Okay? Not only does He have mercy on whomever He will, He also hardens whomever He will. That brings us 
to step nine. And the question, why does God find fault with sinners if He hardens them who can resist His will? Isn't that what it says? Isn't that the question that, that's asked there? What verse is that? Verse 19? You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Step 10 is the answer to that. How do we answer that? The answer is this. Men, women, you are clay. You all come from the same lump. The lump of fallen, depraved humanity. It's critical that you remember who you are. Who are you, old man? You need to remember who you are. You are from a, an Adamic lump. You are from the lump of those who love sin. Remember this. God is God. You are not God. God is the potter. You are not the potter. He is good. We come from a lump that is not good. We come from the lump of Adam. He has the right, God has the right over the hell-deserving clay. And that is the lump we come from to give some what they deserve while freely showing mercy to some who don't deserve it. Step 11. Why does God show mercy on some and harden others? Yes, it says that He does both to whomever He wills. Yes, He's the potter with the right to do what He wants. But why would He want to do either? Why show mercy on any when they all deserve wrath? Or why not save all if God is able to save all? Why should any be hardened? I mean, isn't... And he, he answers that as well. That brings us to step 12. The answer to that question, notice in verse 17 the word show. God raised up Pharaoh. And the next verse says He hardened him. He hardens whomever He wills. But He raised up Pharaoh to show His power. Now if you look down at verse 22, you're going to see the same word found again. What if God desiring to show His wrath and to make known? Again, get that. Make known. That's like show. To show is to put on display. To make known is so that we're able to see it. We're able to apprehend it. We're able to have some recognition of it. To make known His power, He's endured with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And then notice verse 23. In order to make known the riches of His glory on vessels of mercy, which He's prepared beforehand for glory. Simply put, vessels of wrath exist for the purpose of showing God's wrath. While vessels of mercy exist for the purpose of showing the riches of God's mercy. Look, both serve the same function. Making God known. Putting Him on display. If all were vessels of mercy, God's wrath would not be made known. And if all were vessels of wrath, God's mercy would not be made known. That's basically what we have being taught to us there. So we have this. Let me, let me shoot through these 12 steps. You've got Israel perishing. Israel perishing second... After they've been given promises. Third, has the Word of God failed? Four, no, not all Israel's of Israel. Five, how does one become a true Israelite? Six, by election, before someone ever does good or bad. Seven, is election fair? Eight, yes, God has mercy on whom He has mercy. No one deserves it. And He hardens all the rest, and they deserve that. Nine, then why does God still find fault with sinners who can resist Him if He hardens them? Ten, God does not harden good people who don't deserve it. He hardens bad people, and it's His right as the potter to do so. Eleven, what's God's purpose for showing mercy on some and hardening some? Twelve, to show His power, to show His wrath, to show His mercy. 
So there are the first 12 steps of progression in a short survey of where we come thus far in Romans 9. Now, I realize that probably took up half our time. I'm not saying that was meant to be just a quick introduction. But just to bring everybody up to speed, and I know some of you have not been here in the whole, um, this whole study in Romans 9. That brings us really to verse 24. Now let's look there. Verse 24 starts in the middle of a sentence. So let's start reading in verse 22 so that we can make some sense of this and, and what exactly Paul's saying here. That's where the sentence begins. Verse 22. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Now, some of you might just be floored by this whole thing. You just never had any idea the Bible even taught such things that God has a desire to show His wrath and to make known His power. And in that desire, He endures with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He's prepared beforehand for glory. Now look, let's let this really hit us where we live. You, every one of you, is either a vessel of wrath or you are a vessel of mercy. You are on the great potter's wheel and it's spinning and He is forming and He is molding. He is shaping. We can't escape that. When you walk into the supermarket or you drive down the street, you're passing other people. As you're in your workplace or at school or wherever life takes you. So often we get, we get so locked into what we see visually. Beloved, we live in the realm of God. In the realm of God's authority. In the realm of God's power. In the realm of God's creation. So often we become blind to that. God and His purposes are all around us. They are constantly being worked out. What you are seeing in life is, is all around us. Vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath. One or the other. Now we don't know it's not stamped on their forehead. But I just think right now, the, the, a couple of weeks ago at the campus, Ruby had a run-in with an atheist. And this guy was foul-mouthed and he hated God. Now think about that. He's on God's wheel. God is spinning that. And He's shaping this man. Now I don't know what He is. Because some of us were there. We were being formed at a time we hated God. We hated His ways. We hated His Word. And yet, for all that, God was... You, we look back now and we remember it. Wow! We see the hand of God was there. He was molding. He was shaping. He was bringing us. Sometimes the very hatred people show is just, it's, it's His hand. It's His touch. He was, he was putting a certain shape here and there and just bringing us into this shape where we would come to receive Christ. Now, maybe that's not the case with this man. Maybe he's being hardened and God is just blowing His his blast furnace on this, on this pot of this man to harden and harden and bring it to where it's just resistant to Christ and it will not see. And He's just giving it over. As we find in Romans 1. We don't know these things, but what I want you guys to realize is that's life. You know, sometimes we, we just... You gotta see it, folks. You, you, if you turn on a football game, you know, those folks running around out there on the field... They're not just, you know, Texas or Dallas or, or you know, whoever the team might be. When you, Matt was talking about the Spurs today. You know, these guys, you know, when, you, when, you, when we're confronted by life on every hand. I mean, you, you know, you've got to realize that sometimes, you, you know, somebody was saying that, that they watch sometimes the, the guys like Benny Hinn on television. You guys have to realize it's, it's not just, oh, you know, I don't like what he teaches 
you got to realize this guy is he's not outside of the power of God. He's on that wheel and God is kicking it around and it's spinning and he's being shaped into something and God is going to get glory in him. And God is going to get glory in our children that Matt was talking about. And God's going to get glory in you. And you know, I'll tell you this, God's glory is not only gotten out of people by bringing them to Christ and by showing mercy, He gets glory by showing His power in people like Pharaoh who He hardens and He damns. Why? Because it reveals, oh, beloved, we have to come to grips with this. We have to grab hold that as a child of God, your greatest happiness could not be realized if evil was not in this world. It took God bringing and allowing and ordaining and decreeing sin in this world and having men and women hardened. That is necessary for your greatest joy. And I'll tell you this, I'll tell you exactly why that is so. Because the riches of the glory of God are showered upon the vessels of mercy which are being prepared for glory. What is that glory? I'll tell you, there's nothing bigger and greater than having God and having conceptions of Him and having an image of Him that is accurate and right and glory. Because that is where glory is. I mean, glory is basically... This, this shine that comes off of something that is valuable, something that is bright and glorious and pure. God, God is the actual, he, he is the epitome, He is the very core and heart of all that is pure, all that is glorious, all that is valuable, all that is treasurable. That's Him. The greatest thing God can do, the greatest and most loving thing God can do for the vessels of mercy is show us Himself. Give us Himself. Reveal Himself to us. That's why the Scriptures are all about what is eternal life? What is eternal life? What did Christ say it was? To know the Christ and the Father who sent Him. That's what eternal life is. It's knowing God. That's the heart of the Apostle. Oh, that I may know Him. Listen, We've got to come clear on this. Because as vessels of mercy, if God did not have sinners to be punished, if God's wrath was not made known, then you understand, part of who God is would not be made known to us. And proportionate to the amount of that revelation of God that's not made known to us would affect our eternal joy. It's, it says... Jonathan Edwards talked about the fact that the more you know God, the more you love God. He, saw, he sees heaven as this ever-increasing, ever-expansive joy and love because we are finite creatures at best. Even in glory, we are finite creatures. And yet God is infinite. And so all of eternity is going to be taken up with coming to understand and coming to know God more and more. As eternity progresses, you'll never know all of God because you'll only always be finite. And yet, because God is infinite, there will never be an end to our increase in knowing Him. We will always be coming to greater and greater and fuller realizations of who He is. And as we do, the more we realize, the more in God we see to be lovable. And the more love we have for Him, the more joy... And so it's ever-abounding, ever-increasing, ever-expansive, ever-upward. But to the very degree that we would not have ideas about the wrath of God, about His hatred for sin, His fury and indignation against that which is evil, to the degree we would not have known that, to that degree we would not have found God lovable and found our joy increasing, proportionate to that amount of information and knowledge that we would not have had about God would have limited our joy to that degree. You say, I don't find the wrath of God to be glorious and something exciting and joyful. It's because probably man is more important to you than God is. And that's the problem with humanistic man. Is he is more concerned about the glory of man, typically about his own glory, personally, 
very selfish and self-centered than the glory of God. But I'll tell you, heaven isn't so. Heaven isn't like this earth. Everything in heaven is going to be arrows pointing to God. Everything. We are going to see God in everything. And we will have the unhindered ability to realize Him in everything. And to see His glory in everything. And to delight in everything. Just in as much as it's connected to Him. Now, in verse 24, he says this. He just talked about the vessels of mercy, even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed He says in Hosea, those who were not My people, I will call My people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not My people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Now I'm going to finish up this morning by showing you four truths that just jump right out of these verses, at least at me. You, you, there may be, and most definitely are others. But I'm going to give you four. One, Gentiles are included among God's people. You see right there at the beginning of verse 24? Us whom He has called. You all see that? Who are these people? Us whom He has called. Who are they? I mean, right there in the context, who are they, clearly? They're the vessels of mercy from verse 23, are they not? You see, vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called. The ones, the us here, who Paul has in mind, are the ones who are called. They are the very ones from verse 23 that are vessels of mercy. If you back up even further in verse 21, they're vessels for honored use. They're the whomevers from verse 18 that the Lord wills to have mercy upon. In verse 8, they're the true offspring. They're the children of promise, the children of God. They're the true children of Abraham in verse 7, and the true Israel of verse 6. But where do these people come from? Now, if you think about what Paul's done so far, he's shown us three vessels of mercy and two vessels of wrath. Personally, by name. Who are they? The three vessels of mercy he's shown us are Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. The two vessels of wrath he's shown to us are Esau and Pharaoh. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you think about Isaac and Jacob and Moses, right away you say, hey, they're all physically Jews. Even though a lot of Jews, physical Jews, ethnic Jews, most of them are perishing, but maybe what Paul's teaching us is that unless you're a physical Jew, you can never become a spiritual Jew. Maybe that's what he's teaching, because the only examples he gives to us are only those who were born in the Abrahamic bloodline. You know what? What we find here is verse 24 destroys any such notion. God is calling men and women and children to come to Christ not from the Jews only. You see that there, verse 24? But also from the Gentiles. In fact, the truth is, the majority that God was saving in Paul's day and is saving now by the blood of Christ, most Christians are coming from the Gentiles. While only a tiny little remnant of the Jews are having the veil torn away from their eyes to see Jesus Christ for who He truly is. Now there's one truth. The Jews are included. Second truth. 
verse 25, verse 26, verse 27, verse 28, verse 29, five consecutive verses. Paul doesn't give us any commentary whatsoever. You know all he does there? He quotes from the Old Testament. Five verses from the Old Testament. First you've got two from Hosea, then three verses are quoted from Isaiah. Why? To show us that all those perishing Jews that Paul was sorrowing over, far from proving that the Word of God had failed, Paul is showing from the Old Testament that God's rejection of the Jews and the inclusion of the Gentiles is precisely what God's Word did say would happen. It hasn't failed. It's coming to pass just like the prophet said that it would. Just like the Old Testament stated. While at the same time, only a remnant of Israel is actually being saved. This is just what the Lord said would happen. This takes us back to verse 6. It is not as though God's Word has failed. Look, not all Israel belongs to Israel. Only a remnant of physical Israel belongs to spiritual Israel. And lots of Gentiles belong to spiritual Israel. And it's exactly what the Old Testament said would happen. Exactly. But you know what happened? The Jews, you've got the Old Testament Jews, they were so prejudiced, were they not? Do you guys remember what happened the first time Jesus preached in the book of Luke? Luke chapter 4? Jesus says, in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them. You see what he's teaching? He's speaking to a Jewish audience and he says, let me tell you about Elijah. Now you know what's amazing? These Jews knew their Bible. Just like the Jews Paul's talking to know their Bible. But you know what's amazing? For as much as they read their Bible, they constantly sat in the hearing of having the Old Testament read. Because of their prejudice, they just missed what Scripture said. They didn't want to hear it. They'd heard the stories about Elijah, but they never really put it together. And here Christ is just bringing clarification from the Old Testament. They all knew it was true. I mean, how could they hardly find fault with Him? And yet He says, isn't it amazing? All these widows in Israel, Elijah didn't go to any of them. Also, you have another day with Elijah's predecessor, Elisha. Lots of lepers in Israel. God didn't go to any of them. He went to a Syrian. And what did they want to do to Christ? They ran Him all the way out to the edge of the hill. Now here's, here's the problem. The Jews, did they know Hosea? Did they know Isaiah? Had they read these texts before? Absolutely they had. They'd studied these Scriptures. And yet their eyes were blinded. They hated the Gentiles. They could not conceive of the fact that the Gentiles would be God's people. They were God's people. The Gentiles were unclean. They knew these. They came across remnant with concerning themselves. Totally blind to it. Just went right across it. They saw these texts. There's texts repeatedly in the prophets. Repeatedly in the Psalms. Concerning the Gentiles. Yet, oh, and they hated it. And when Christ came and He started speaking that way, John the Baptist was there too. Don't you, don't you dare even say that you're children of Abraham. God is able right out of these stones. Christ comes along, He starts preaching this message. They want to run the very Savior out to the edge of the hill and they want to kill Him. But here's the truth. This is the exact fulfillment of the Scriptures. And you're going to see it. Paul's not done yet. He's going to give us two whole more chapters to... Show us. This is exactly what God prophesied would happen. Third truth. I told you I was going to give you four. Here's the third one. Salvation is more than forgiveness. That ought to jump out at you. It's found in verse 25 and 26. Here we have something really profound about the very heart 
of what it is to be a Christian. Look, folks, do you think of Christianity just like it's the forgiveness of sin? I mean, that's big. That's huge. Having all your sins nailed to that cross, that's essential. But do you see in verses 25 and 26 there, what's the heart of the issue? Those who are not called my people are going to be called my people. Those who are not beloved are going to be my beloved. What God is doing is He's establishing relationship with people. He's making them His. He's entering into intimacy with people. The only reason that we need to have our sins dealt with is why. It's our sins that separate us from God. In God dealing with sin, He's taking away what stands in the way of us having this intimate, close relationship with God. It's our sin that alienates us. It's much more than that. Much, much more. God takes those who are not beloved and calls them His beloved. I just I throw that out at, at you as a third point. And I go to the fourth. But, I, you know, before I really hit the fourth, I, I want you guys to realize there are people in this world who are not beloved. The fourth point is this. Notice in verse 26 exactly where the place is that men and women are called the children of the living God. Let me tell you something. You've come in this place today, you're sitting there. You may think it's a joke. You may not want to be here. You may wish you were somewhere else right now. Let me tell you this, and don't take this as a small thing. There are some of you that that very chair you sit in, God is saying right this moment, in that place, not my people, not my beloved. You can laugh. You can blow this off. You can mess around. You can be foolish. But I'll tell you this, there will come a day when it will not be a funny thing to you. If you knew what being separated from Christ and not being beloved, if you knew the heart of that, you would tremble, you would scream, you would cry out at the top of your lungs to know the horror of what that is. That right there in your seat, that is a place where God is saying, not My people. You do not belong to Me. Laugh on! But you are without Christ. You have no hope. Is that funny? Is that hilarious? Come with me, brethren. Some of you were here. You know this. You heard this testimony. Go in your mind's eye with me to some place we heard about. I happen to know I was part of the church early on. I can remember us having a Bible study, not a, a prayer meeting in this house, maybe several times. But I want to take you folks over to a street north of downtown, Thorain Street. You go there. You know where Thorain is? It's over, it runs off of Blanco, San Pedro area. I can see a house there. You know what? There's a man and a woman living there. They're living in sin. They're living in the kind of sin that God says, don't be deceived. If you live in that kind of sin, you don't inherit the kingdom of heaven. You know what? Right in that place, 
God says, not my people. And it's horrible. They don't even know it. They've got deluded ideas that, oh, it's going to turn out okay. They don't realize, stamped across the roof, stamped across their foreheads, stamped in every chair they sit in in that house, it says, not my people. Not mine. Not beloved. Without hope. Without God in this world. But folks, here's the Gospel. This is the good news. If you read verse 26 again, in the very place where it was said, you are not My people. There. Right there. Right where it was said, you are not My people. Carlos and Stephanie are called the children of the living God. Don't miss that word call. You know what? It's in verse 25. It's in verse 26. Call my people. Call my beloved. You know what's very interesting about that? Hosea didn't use the word call. He used the word says. He basically stated, I will say to not my people, you are my people. Paul adds the call. You know why? Because in verse 24, he was just talking about us who are called. That even goes back to verse 11, where it's not because of works, but it's according to His call. Brethren, this is at the heart of the matter. It traces back to God who says, you're not My people. How? What happens in that place where they're not His people? The Lord God Almighty rushes in with a mighty saving hand. He calls men. That's how Carlos and Stephanie came to be called otherwise. God called them. He called them out of that darkness. He called them to come to His Son. That's, that's key. I mean, it may be that some of you that are here are hearing that voice. It's beckoning you into the arms of Christ. Come embrace My Son. I sent Him to make not My people My people. As I was thinking through this message, I'm envisioning Freddie. He's selling crystal meth at a stand somewhere. Some Catholic deal, if I remember. And there's a police over there. And I'm thinking that little stand, that little table. Freddie's got the meth. He's working this thing right there. I can remember Freddie sitting up at church. He'd come in still strung out and hung over in that chair right there on the aisle. Right in that chair. God was saying right there, not my people. Right at that table, he's dealing drugs. Not my people. And yet, right in that place where it was said, not my people, he says, son of the living God. The children asked the other night, Mama, did you used to smoke? She said, yeah. I'm thinking of Ruby with a cigarette dangling from her lip. And I'm picturing her on a bar stool or something out with her girlfriends. And right in that place where it was said, not my people, my beloved. I'm imagining Craig. He told me the story. He's a little kid. He's sitting on the stairs crying. And he had every reason to cry. His mother was trying to soothe him, telling him it was all okay. But you know what God was saying? Right there on that seat. Not my people. He had every reason to be crying. He had every reason to be afraid. But right in that place... Craig goes and sits in that very step right now, in that very place where it was said that, God now says, Son of the living God. I was imagining through any different... I was imagining Letty teaching her class in the Catholic Church all just dead in sins. Right there where she stood teaching. Not my people. Not my beloved. That's the Gospel. And you say, what, what hope is there to go to Mark's friend's house over there off Ritterman? So what? If written above the door, it says, not my people. So what? We know that we serve a God that right in that very place, it may be said, my beloved, sons of the living God. That's exactly what He's in the business of doing. I was imagining... A chair. No! 
numbers of chairs. As some of you sat in right in front of the computer as you stared at pornography and right in that chair it could be written across that screen, not my people. And yet now, in those very chairs, my people. And that's the glory. The, those old hell holes we hung out in, those old bars, those places that our sin took us, it may have just been the money table. I was thinking of John Seitzman, you know, striving to be successful in the furniture business. Striving to just, you know, make sure that his brother didn't run away with the business and make sure he stayed on his coattails and, you know, counting out the money. Right there in that place. Not my people. And now, right in that very same place, those very same schools, those very same houses, those very same... I was imagining how many mirrors you ladies in your lost days stood in front of to pretty yourselves up in vain. Why? To run out, play the whore, have a night on the town, right there in front of those same mirrors now and said, my people, my beloved daughter, You know what? You might be in the very seat you sit in right now. You came in here today, you sat in that chair. And right in that chair, God was saying, not my people. You are not mine. That should make you tremble because that's true of a lot of people and that's true of a number of you that sit in this room right now. It's said of that very place you sit, not my people. But I'll tell you this. You can rise from that chair and in that very place where that was said, it can be said sons of the living God. But I'll tell you this. Christ is the issue. He's always the issue. Because whether it was my wife with the cigarette dangling from her lips, or John Seitzman at the money changer's box, or Craig on the step, Freddie with his drugs, John Hopper wanting all the intellectual explanations, I'll tell you this, it always boils down. What do you do with Christ? Always the issue. Always. Christ says, there's only one way to the Father. There's only one way to become God's people. There's only one door to go through. There's only one way. And it's always Christ. And it's always on His terms. And it's absolute surrender. You've got to repent of everything. Every idol. There must be no reliance on the flesh whatsoever. You cannot clean up your own life. No amount of church going. I'll tell you this, He said, unless you forsake all that you have, you cannot be My disciple. Those who are truly spiritual Israelites, you find it in Philippians 3.3, the true circumcision, they're those who put no confidence in the flesh. You say, I go to church. Well, then you can go to hell if that's where your reliance is. That is not the path to becoming God's people. It's always Christ. He comes. He will save you totally. He will save you wholly. He will do it through the merits of His life and His death and not anything that you can add to it. It is not your church going. It is not your Bible reading. It is not you cleaning up your life. It's always there. It's always that. Christ is always the issue. And He says, look, you've got to come like this. You've got to come with those hands empty. You do not come to Christ holding on to sin. Don't you dare believe you're going to get to heaven when your life is full of lies, full of hypocrisy, some of you, you know it. You know. You tell lies. You're li- you're, you are a liar. Oh, you speak of Christ, but you are a liar. And right in that seat you sit right now, it is said, not my people. 
And don't believe that just because it said not my people that right in that place it always is said my people because lots of people stay in that place their whole life. They live and they die and they perish. Christ is always the issue. Will you have Him save you putting no confidence in the flesh? Will you glory in Him alone? No, more, no confidence in anything else. Will you have Him to save you? And I'll tell you this, those Christ saves, He saves well. He doesn't leave them in their sin. He doesn't just erase the record of sin against you. He destroys the power of it in your lives. Will you be saved from your sin? You go to Him. You go to Him as you are. And those, every one of us that have done that, we found right there, sons of the living God, vessels of mercy. Don't toy. Some of you are playing games. You know it. You know it. Blessed are the pure in heart, and your heart is not pure. Your heart is full of bitterness. Your heart is full of greed. Your heart is full of hate. Your heart is full of lies and deceit and hypocrisy. Your lives are full of lust. And I'll tell you, it's branded on your forehead. Not my people. Or as the book of Revelation says it, Six, six, six. That's the number of man. You never achieve the perfection of God. That's the gospel. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is perfect, without defect. It's what Christ earned for His people. And it will be imputed to everyone who looks upon Christ by faith. Crucified, dead, buried, resurrected. There's life in that look. There's righteousness in that look. That's why Paul was not ashamed of it. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Father, may great grace attend a weak effort to make Christ known. Amen. You are dismissed. <laughs>